12 months ago, three words rang out across Iran. Women, life, freedom. They were three words that came from an incident of utter brutality. The killing of a young Iranian woman, Masa Gina Amini. Women, life, freedom. With these three words came a demand from the street that Iran must change. In a manner that is the hallmark of the Iranian regime, they responded to demands for change with violence. The violence was tragically effective. In the 12 months since the killing of Masar Amini, the demands of these protesters have not changed, and neither has Iran's insistence on control and obedience. This week on The New Arab Voice, how has the protest movement changed over the past 12 months? What measures have the regime taken? And what is the legacy of Masar Amini and her senseless murder? My name is Hugo Goodridge, and you're listening to The New Arab Voice. The protests that erupted across Iran 12 months ago were an intense release of pent-up feelings of injustice and anger, sparked by the killing of Masa Amini at the hands of Iran's morality police. Masa, also known by her Kurdish name, Gina, was snatched off the streets in the capital Tehran by the country's morality police, accused of wearing the mandatory headscarf incorrectly and beaten so badly that she fell into a coma and later died in hospital. Her killing blew the lid off a situation that had been growing in the country for decades. Before these protests even erupted, there was a situation of intense crisis inside of Iran, and particularly with respect to women. This is Susan Tamasebi, the director of Femina, an organization that supports women human rights defenders and feminist movements in the MENA and Asia regions. Femna recently published a highly detailed report on the situation in Iran titled The Years of Hardship. So it wasn't unusual and unexpected that with the death of Masa Gina Amini in custody of the morality police, that women finally said enough is enough. We had several other cases of extreme violence against women and others with respect to hijab that had angered the Iranian public. So this anger and the protests that emerged after the death and custody of Mahsa Jina Amini was really to be expected. The protests in Iran spread quickly. By September 20th, just four days after Amini's death, protests were being reported in 16 of Iran's 31 provinces. They persisted for several months, but over time, the numbers on the streets did drop off but not for lack of interest or because demands had been met. Much more, it was a matter of risk. While they may have been initially slow to respond, when the regime did respond, it was with brutal violence. Protesters who chose to go out onto the street and ask for freedom risked lengthy jail sentences or even death. The regime did everything in their power to quash the protests, but they were never going to be able to put the genie back in the bottle. So whether women are protesting or not, they are acting, they are engaging in these peaceful acts of resistance and dissent to take claim over their own bodies and the way that they dressed. I should mention that the protests were dealt with very violently by the Islamic Republic 
of Iran's security forces. We had over 500 people killed, 60 of them were children, about 10% of them were women. We had seven executions, thousands, ten, tens of thousands of people arrested, women human rights defenders arrested and sentenced to long prison terms. And the two journalists, Nilufar Hamadi and Elohe Mohammadi, who reported on the case of the killing of uh, Mahsa Amini in detention and then later her funeral, still continue to be in prison on a one-year temporary detention order, which is ridiculous. So the level of violence is extremely high, and we cannot gauge people's dissent based on whether they go out and engage in public protests where the costs are so high. Masa Gina Amini was killed because of a perceived hijab infraction. And in the weeks that followed, the issue of the mandatory hijab was debated. I do think that it is a majority view. Those people who believe in the hijab for religious reasons do not want to enforce their viewpoints on other women, except for those who are somehow politically motivated, I think. I do think that there is this, this agreement among Iranian women, the majority of Iranian women, that they welcome and accept one another as they are. We do have resistance, as I mentioned, especially among groups that are somehow politically affiliated or um, sympathize with the state. But generally, I think um, this is this is the case. Given the authoritarian environment in Iran and the somewhat closed off nature of the country, it can be difficult to get a complete picture. But a November 2022 report by the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change, in conjunction with the Group for Analyzing and Measuring Attitudes in Iran, conducted polling over a two-year period. Perhaps predictably, the compulsory hijab among young people aged between 20 and 29 was opposed by 78% of respondents. Among those aged 30 to 49, 68% opposed the compulsory hijab. And among respondents aged 50 and over, opposition increased, with 74% of those polled stating their opposition to a mandatory hijab for women. The protests of 12 months ago were born out of a demand for women's freedom. But from the very start, calls were never solely made by women. Husbands, brothers, sons and friends of Iranian women stood shoulder to shoulder supporting the same demands. The same poll recorded that 71% of Iranian men opposed the mandatory hijab. Whether it be the crowds who took to the streets or the polling in the country, there is a clear disconnect between the citizens of Iran and those in power. The embodiment of this disconnect is the very institution that lit the fuse of Iranian anger, the morality police. One of the main demands that emerged immediately after the death in custody of Masajina Amini was the dismantling of the morality police, the end of the violence used to control women's bodies and their dress and the freedom to choose uh, one's dress. These were some of the more immediate demands that emerged uh, following her death. And it's unfortunate that the Iranian state has refused to to listen to its own citizens again and again and again, because these have been demands that have been echoed 
over decades, not only these, but other demands with respect to women's rights and expressed by women, by the women's movement for decades. And the Iranian authorities have refused to listen to these demands, to abide by these demands, to take any action to reform the laws and the way that they view women. But the start of the protests and the intense anger directed at the morality police, their methods and the impunity they appear to enjoy, the regime initially withdrew them from the streets. Rumours circulated that they had been disbanded, but these rumours later turned out to be false. And in July of this year, the regime announced, in a depressing turn, that they would resume morality patrols on Iran's streets, enforcing the dress guidelines for women. The morality police, I think, was, in my reading of the um, Iranian decision-making and the Iranian state, wasn't ever going to go away. I think what they've done is bring them back with uh, perhaps a new, more sort of specified mandate. This is Dr. Sanam Fakil, the director of the Middle East and North Africa program at Chatham House. The reason why the regime has been uncompromising over this issue is for a few reasons. First of all, I think that the establishment and the leadership, and particularly Iran's um, supreme leader, sees compromise as begetting further compromise. And they very much fear that a shift on an important foundational issue like the hijab would then lead to the goalposts moving and other pressures um, being imposed and coming from below, reasserting control on ideology and on um, the foundation of Islam and Iranian society, I think is important for the leadership to, uh, to establish authority. That's their position. They want to be imposing and they want to force compliance. And Susan again. I think Iranian, the Iranian state sees women as a security threat unfortunately, and their demands as a security threat. The Islamic public has taken a very conservative interpretation of Sharia law and applied it to the legal system that governs the lives of Iran Iranians and especially Iranian women. The only thing that is in accordance with Islam or their version of Islam is actually women's status. So this, in a sense, is a, a last stronghold that they're not willing to let go of. Part of the people that support the Islamic Republic, that wholeheartedly support the Islamic Republic, this is an important issue for them. So it's really a matter of responding to the political groups that support them, the Iranians that do support them. And I do think that they really are a minority, this extreme group. The passion of the protests and the manner in which they galvanized a huge section of society prompted hope that change was not only possible, but also inevitable. The return of the morality police dented this, and a further blow was felt this month. On September 20th, Iran's parliament passed the hijab and chastity bill. This increased the punishment for those who are deemed to be dressed, quote-unquote, inappropriately. This new law would mean that those found in breach of hijab laws could face five to ten years in prison. This is a dramatic increase from the 10 days to two months that is currently on the statute books. Additionally, fines of up to $7,300 can also be imposed. 
So in that sense, it's worrisome because we've long said that the issue of women has been securitized by the Iranian state, but this is a more formal way of securitizing women's bodies, control over their own bodies and their dress. But this um, bill is also worrisome in the level of the exorbitant amount of fines it imposes on women. It's an attempt to make money off of Iranian citizens and whatever that they can. And of course, if you watch the developments around this bill, there was a sort of a very public disagreement among different branches of government about who would benefit from uh, the funds that were collected from these fines. And ultimately, it was the executive branch, the, the presidential office or the executive branch that benefits from the fines imposed on women. But these fines are exorbitant. And even the initial fine for this ends up being several times the salary of an ordinary uh, worker. I should mention that it creates different classes of women, women who can afford the fine and women who can't afford the fine. So poorer women will have to observe uh, the mandatory hijab and will lose control over their bodies. So this for me is worrisome. The new law also increases punishments and fines for business owners and employers seen to violate the law. These fines are also exorbitant because they hold managers of businesses and public spaces and even government offices uh, responsible for the behavior of women who work for them. So we will see others beyond the multitude of security agencies responsible for controlling women's dress. We will see ordinary citizens also responsible for controlling women's dress. These people will be fined if the women in their establishment or in their offices do not observe the hijab. Uh, For businesses, they could have exorbitant fines and also be closed eventually people riding in cars, their cars will be impounded and um, they have to pay the cost of the heavy costs of the impound lot associated with that. If passed, the bill not only splits the country on gender lines, but also class lines, pitting women against other women. For the bill to become law, it still needs the approval of the Guardian Council, who cannot be accused of harbouring any liberal or reformist views. As well as the increased legal repression on women, 12 months after the start of the protest, they have also recently targeted the families of those who lost loved ones at the hands of the state, out of fear that efforts to memorialise them could turn into more protests. Given the tragic and wholly unnecessary loss of life that prompted the protests, and the hundreds of lives that were later taken, it's difficult not to think of the movement as somewhat of a failure. The recent developments by the state have not only reimposed the systems that existed before the killing of Massa Gina Amini, but they've also been reinforced. The protest movement was forged by tragedy and powered by a demand for justice and dignity. But the Iranian regime is an incredibly formidable and highly skilled adversary. Dr. Sanam Vakil of Chatham House again. The Islamic Republic has a long history of protests, but even if you look at the principal protests over the past 20 years in Iran, you had student protests in 1999, you had Green Movement protests in 2009, 
protests in 2017, protests in 2019, and then um, the protests of last year. This is a country that has experienced a lot of protests. I think they're quite used to protests um, as a system. And and the political establishment has developed and honed a crackdown playbook. So while they, I wouldn't characterize them as living in fear of further protests, but they try to manage and contain further uprisings and, and protests. As previously mentioned, the Iranian regime is unwilling to fold on issues and provide any concessions to protesters. It did not listen to any calls regarding the compulsory hijab, but neither did it pay heed to any of the other issues that joined the protests last year, whether they be social or economic in nature. The regime has a narrow position and structure. It's a narrow position and structure that it likes, because it ensures its survival. To change this is to alter the foundations, and to alter the foundations brings risk. It's an authoritarian system, and the sort of intention of an authoritarian system is to survive despite the people. And in order to survive, it has chosen to become more narrow. It needs to be narrow in order to maintain power. And it can't be as inclusive because inclusivity from, I think, the reading of the Supreme Leader, inclusivity has ushered in protests and has ushered in political challenges. So narrow consensus among conservatives guarantees easier execution of policy, easier implementation of any kind of decisions, uh, less contention at the top, similar to what we see in other more closed authoritarian systems. The constant figure at the top of this narrow and concentrated power structure is, of course, the supreme leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. In recent years, when protests have erupted, Khamenei has been the focus point of the protesters' hate, generally edging out the president or other institutions like the army. Each round of protests that we have seen since 1999 have become very political and more personal with Khamenei himself, his his members of his family, his son being directly attacked by protesters. So, you know, he's certainly being called out um, and being held personally responsible. But at 84 years old, time will eventually get the better of him. And the man at the top for it will undoubtedly be a man, will change. The protests following the killing of Masra Amini shook Iran. When Khomeini goes, it has the potential to be an earthquake. It, it's really an unknown known. It's on the horizon. I think the regime is very conscious that it's on the horizon. And so there are a number of scenarios that I could sort of anticipate happening. One is the system remains intact and a new supreme leader is selected from within the assembly of experts. Uh, you could have a contest for power within the assembly of experts. This is the body of 86 clerics that are tasked with electing the next supreme leader. You could have constitutional reform, which also took place in 1989 during the last um, succession. And that reform could amend the political system or lead to any number of outcomes where they could create a council of clerics that would sit at the top, perhaps in a much more informal position of power. You could have a military coup. I mean, everything is on the table right now to a certain degree. But I think that part of the reason why 
individuals and institutions are more resistant to reform is by maintaining narrow control of the, over the state, it allows them to manage succession in a bit more of a coordinated way. And sadly, for Iranians seeking immediate change in the country, until the fateful day that Khomeini does go, the country's power brokers are likely to remain in a state of stasis, unwilling or perhaps fearful that to make too bold a move could jeopardize their position in the inevitable future. I think that um, we are in a period of political transition, and that's clear to me because you're not seeing bold leadership or decision-making from any of the institutions or individuals, um, be it the Speaker of the Parliament or the President or um, everyone is working within the system and trying to build consensus, which is a certain type of leadership. But we are not seeing policy reform, economic uh, reform. We're not seeing new ideas to try to uh, improve governance, reduce corruption, improve accountability. We're seeing, you know, perhaps mini band-aids, patterns of sort of patronage, not real efforts at building strong and, and more effective governance within the system. So I expect this pattern of decision-making to continue um, until Khamenei dies. And I, and, and I think this is going to continue also because these individuals who do have leadership, but maybe not adequate authority, are looking to preserve their leadership and preserve their relevance through the transition and in what comes next. And, and so everyone is being quite cautious. The protests last year, the protests in 2019, 17, 2009, and any others you care to mention, have shown time and again that the regime is facing an angry population who want to see them thrown from office or, at a minimum, implement broad reforms. So where is the glorious leader? Who will lead the people? Currently, no one, but with good reason. I think there are many potential leaders in Iran. Many of them, though, are in jail. You know, whether you have activists and, and lawyers like um, Nagas and Mohammadi or Nasrin Asutudeh, just to name two, um, they've both been in jail for quite some time. And the Iranian government has been very strategic in cracking down on civil society, arresting potential activists, breaking up networks. This is a system that has been built on the foundation of a revolution. Uh, these are former revolutionaries. So over the course of four decades, they've become quite effective at preventing organization and preventing leadership from developing uh, because ultimately, you know, they're seeking to prevent any kind of revolution or political change from below. There have been flashes of an organized opposition, but they have faltered, either due to their own failings or because of regime pressure or interference. Um, there was a brief moment where a number of activists alongside 
the former Shah's son, Reza Pahlavi, came together and tried to demonstrate unity and created a sort of alliance for democracy. But that movement fractured very quickly and really reflects um, factionalism in the diaspora, lack of consensus on what political future could be for, for Iran and Iranians. And I think that there's got to be a lot of learning and bridge building abroad as well as inside the country. I think people quite clear on what they don't want and they don't want the Islamic Republic. But I don't think there's consensus among 5 million abroad and 85 million people inside as what as to what people do want. And so I think we have to be quite conscious and humble of those limitations. As seen in the past 12 months, if Iranians go out onto the streets and protests, then lawmakers will not listen to their calls. And they risk being arrested, beaten or even killed and any effective opposition leader or group is outlawed and shut down before it can ever begin. I think the the option for Iranians that are seeking political change is a, a bit of a longer term one. It requires them to reflect on the history of the revolution and think about what is needed in order to build networks and consensus and leadership within the system of the Islamic Republic. And that's, of course, a very big ask um, for ordinary individuals um, that would have to you know, potentially risk their lives through this process. But without organization, networks, leaders, and, and some thinking as to what comes next, there aren't options. Because the system in, in the Islamic Republic is institutional, it's bureaucratized, and hundreds or thousands of protesters on their own can't fight a system that has more at stake in, in, and, and is more willing to use violence to stay in power. Masa Gina Amini was arrested by the Iranian state on September 13th. In the back of a van, she was tortured. She died three days later. In the months that followed, a further 500 protesters would be killed by the state and tens of thousands would be arrested and thrown in prison. Today, the situation for women is no better. The morality police are back, snuffing out the sparks of freedom that Iranian women felt for a brief moment. Despite all efforts, the strength of the regime persists, at least for now. But memory also persists. Memory of a young girl, needlessly killed, memory of a state that responded to the cause of its citizens with violence, and memory of the demands made by a nation. Um, I think Masa Amini and her, her tragic death, um, for me, represent a protest and a demand for dignity in Iran. And it's a sort of a hope for all Iranians, regardless of age, or ethnicity or religious affiliation or socioeconomic class, her death unleashed um, an anger and sort of a, a fight for dignity, represented through different slogans and, and different protest movements. But, you know, I think that word best embodies a deep frustration among, a, a, you know, a very broad population. Final words to Susan Tamasebi the director of Femina. For the first time we saw 
at the national level also a lot of sympathy and a lot of understanding of ordinary Iranians with the plight of ethnic minority groups and their demands and an acknowledgement of the level of discrimination and exclusion that they face. So I think women's issues and um, ethnic minority issues and the sense of solidarity um, that was created among broad segment of Iranians across the country with respect to these long-time demands of groups that have been discriminated against, excluded, and marginalized will be the legacy of these protests. And I think another legacy is that, you know, that we do, we did, do really see a cultural shift. I mean, we see a cultural revolution among Iranian women who are refusing um, to bow down and accept uh, state violation of their bodily rights. This episode of The New Arab Voice was written and produced by me, Hugo Goodrich. Our theme music was by Omar El Phil. The New Arab Voice will be back next week. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Arab Voice, for additional content. We also have a weekly newsletter which you can sign up for. Find the link in the show notes. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode and you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news, analysis and opinion from the region. <laughs>